I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. Rafa Benitez is one of the great survivors of football management. He built a reputation on being politically adept, highly organised and deeply committed. Yet, if the toxic mood after Everton's worst home derby defeat in 39 years is any indication, he might have lost his touch. Even his greatest achievement, overseeing that comeback in Istanbul, is being used against him. He followed the money to China while it lasted, and then made the leap of faith to join Everton. Migs, is that the biggest mistake of a celebrated career? It feels like it, just because, because, because of because of that history of that distinguished career, um, particularly where his most prominent success is with their biggest rivals. It just meant that any time there was going to be any bad spell, especially given the situation Everton were in, where they kind of it feels like they're in this perpetual stasis or stagnation. Any time there was any sort of drop off or bad run there's going to be no breathing space all of his past going to come up again which is pretty much exactly what happened on Wednesday night we had the farce of of the away fans singing his name and just all of this adding an extra weight to what is already a difficult problem because it had felt up to now that okay even though a certain amount of Everton fans were you know they basically made their peace with the appointment especially after the good start he had and I think there's there is a deep realization here of the situation everything in and that the problems go beyond the Benitez. Just from judging from some of the reaction, especially some of the nasty scenes at the end of the game, I think that we've all seen the kind of the video clips of it. It, it does feel it's, it's it's really turned on Benitez again, and once more, all of that history with Liverpool has come back. I mean, whether it kind of affects his employability going forward, if Everton do make a move this week or after this horrendous run. I suppose that's one thing that might save Maxi at the moment. The fact that it's such a bad run, they don't want to lumber uh, lumber any interim manager or any replacement with with this spell of fixtures. But I mean, you'd have to imagine Newcastle taking back. There is still a, a relatively decent proven track record in the last few years. But not just because of Everton, it does feel like you know his, his time 
at the top level or close to the top level is now kind of gone. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a piece on this actually today in The Independent for Friday morning on just the kind of the, you, you can't even call it a revolution anymore, but the, the Premier League is currently unprecedented. It doesn't just employ all of the best coaches in the world, bar Nagelsmann and arguably Diego Simeone now. You know, you've got Conte, Tuchel, Guardiola, Klopp there. It also employs their two main influences or two of the most influential figures in Bielsa and Rangnick. And then, of course, a, a, a huge generation of coaches that have come through after Guardiola. But, you know, you, you, you look to people like Potter and Brendan Rodgers as, as, as followers of that approach. Very, they, like, they, they've, they've developed as coaches in a world changed by Guardiola's Barcelona. And, and Rafa Benitez is from before that. And it feels like even his best principles are just out, out of date in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all know, Glenn, don't we, that what happened, or to what tends to happen when you know, the bricks, metaphorically at least, go through the boardroom window, which is what was happening at Goodison. Eight games without a win. Uh, the recruitment, both of managers and players, seems to have been lamentable over a sustained period of time. It was interesting that, that Miggs raised Newcastle as a potential lifeboat. What do you think about that? Do you think we might have some more drama at St James's Park? Well, I was slightly surprised in a way that, I mean, you could see him going there before they brought in Eddie Howe. I mean, had they approached, the time has just not been quite right, has it? I mean, had they approached Everton at the time, they probably would have said no, but I mean, they might now say yes. At the time is not quite right. I can't see them getting rid of Eddie Howe like, within like two or three weeks, but you could see if things don't go well, you know, it's a, it becomes a lifeboat for Rafa. I mean, I mean, there's a, it's a old saying, isn't it? I mean, you, you look at when you're taking a job, you look at, your chairman, you look at, yeah, if you have that luxury to choose, and I mean, had someone looked at Everton, they have, you know, since the takeover, been a bit of a mess in that there's been this massive turnover of managers, of players, or of sporting directors. And I, I, I suspect he probably didn't know the full facts in terms of the limited amount of money he would have to spend. Because otherwise, it did look like a logical appointment. He lives down the road, desperate to get back into the Premier League. Yeah, it's convenient for the family. Everton wanted an Ancelotti-type manager because they decided that Carlo was good. And he's probably the nearest thing out there available to Ancelotti. So you can see a certain amount of logic to it, despite the fans' obvious natural antipathy. But it's not worked out. He's stuck with a poor squad. He can't spend any money on improving that squad. And of course, but if Calvert-Lewin had stayed fit, if Richarlison had been available, you know, throughout, I suspect they'd have been doing fine, as they were when Calvert-Lewin was... I mean, that Brentford game at the weekend... Tamari Gray put in two to three crosses towards the end that he's just crying out for a decent centre forward to get on the end of, which Cavalier, you know, it's bread and butter, those little tap-ins from four or five yards as well as his headers. And then suddenly they get a point there or they might even turn around and run these games into a win. And the whole mood is completely different. So I don't think there was... And then you could look at the team, there's a complete lack of confidence running through the team, which never helps, obviously. It always happens in teams that have a bad run, they, you know, they lose confidence. So there's a sense that it's gone bad now, have the board got the uh, the guts to stick with him and you know wait to see the, who gets back and who gets fit? And the other question, of course, if not Rafa, then who? That's the other big question. I mean, they've got through all sorts of types of managers in recent years. Aren't that many people out there who'd say, oh, well, definitely let's go for him. Who would want the Everton job in the current circumstances? I mean, you end up with Duncan Ferguson as caretaker again. Give it dunk to the end of the season sort of thing. But I did see Rafa saying that we're not in a relegation fight. Well, I think they are. I mean, yeah, there are quite a lot of teams in the relegation fight, to be honest. I think they're one of them. 
Yes. Well, Newcastle are certainly one of those teams, Migs. It will be 195 days without a win when they play Burnley at uh, St James's on Saturday. If that weight extends, would it be time to plan for the championship? Yes, you'd, you'd have to think so. Especially given, even if they manage to turn things round, they've just got so much ground to make up. Because even the bigger question, I suppose, that, I mean, it's it's no secret. The, the, the club, the management, the players had earmarked these these two games as, as a pack, really, ahead because they've got such a difficult run coming up. And given, especially given where Norwich are on the table, the, the team directly above them, there's that kind of lingering question. If, if they don't win these games, when do they win? Especially the fact that both are at St. James's Park. And all of a sudden, I mean, Norwich is one thing. Although I have to say, going into that game, I actually expected Norwich to win. I thought the Dean Smith has restored a bit of stability there, as well as kind of an, an assertiveness about the team. And also I felt that would really suit them in a new in a St. James's Park that could be prone to a bit of maybe anxiety and maybe panic given the situation. And I think we, we could see that. I mean, really, by the end, they were lucky not to lose the game with the way it panned out after Pukki's equaliser and that huge miss laid on from Norwich. And now Burnley are... I mean, they're... All right, it's a home game, but they're such awkward opposition that for a team not just desperate to win right now, but also... I mean, and this, this is one of the issues with appointing Howe, even though I think he's a very good coach... Ultimately, his success as a coach is based on implementing a style over the medium term. And, and, and especially given his style is so different to what Newcastle have, have been playing for the last few years, that will take an adaptation time. And time, of course, is something that Newcastle don't have right now. I, I, I disagree slightly in that, I mean... I know they're six points adrift, but two or three wins suddenly, and most of the teams above the pop are playing okay. But two or three wins makes a huge difference. And I know two or three wins sounds like a huge amount of wins. We've not won all can, season, can you see obviously. Them, can you see them getting those wins? Well, I, the I thing can't. is, the thing is, it, it, it has happened. I mean, and January could be quite significant. And I mean, looking back, I mean. Well, the Fulham, the famous escape, Fulham won the last three under Roy Hodgson, including away at Man City. Okay, City weren't the team they are now, but it was still an incredible state. But the one that maybe the best parallel will be Portsmouth under Redknapp. You know, as late as March, they were bottom. They hadn't, they won one, they taken one point from nine games. They then won 20 out of the last 27 points to stay up. And he brought in nine players, from, you know, typically Harry, he brought in nine players of eight different nationalities in January including Pedro Mendes and a few others, a whole whole list of names that you completely forgotten these days, Benjamin Mamwani, No Pamero, but it did the trick. So it's all about, to an extent, a lot of it is about confidence. I know Newcastle have got quite a weak squad at the moment, but if he does get three or four players in, and if he then do start winning a couple of games, then suddenly you get that belief, you get that sense of turning things around. I mean, look how quickly, you know, as you say, Norwich and Villa have turned, into t- you know, have turned things around into teams that look coherent, just with a couple of wins. So... I wouldn't say it's completely inconceivable, partly because the gap now is so big between the teams at the top and the rest of them. You don't need the 40 points to stay up anymore. You know, you can probably, you're looking low 30s, to be honest, might be enough now because you know, the teams are getting beaten all the time. But it is going to be difficult. And my, my doubt about Eddie would be, one, in terms of bringing players in, he's not traditionally dealt particularly well with um, 
players with big egos. I think that was a bit of an issue at Bournemouth. And his his uh, coaching style is generally based on a team that's playing with a lot of confidence because a lot of it's first time passing football, m- slick moves going forward and so on. It's, it's quite an aggressive for forward play. And to play that sort of way, you do need to feel confident about the way you're playing because you need to make quick decisions successfully rather than sort of thinking about what you're doing for fear of making mistakes and therefore it's a bit of a confidence-based way of playing so it's quite difficult to instill that into a team that's really struggling and also isn't particularly good mm. well money money will be available but i suppose the question is Meg, will it buy the right type of players in january you know by necessity they'll be looking at if not failures people on the fringes at other premier league clubs you know I don't know, Deli Alley or a, a Sanchez at Spurs or a Phil Jones or someone like that at Man United. And also, you know, let's be honest here, they'll be coming for a bit of a pension plan, won't they? Yeah, I mean, there's actually all manner of, manner of complications. So even before you get to January, we have the issue right now, which I, which I do believe is something that feeds into just how difficult it is. But a lot of the current players are essentially playing for someone else's future in that if they keep Newcastle in the Premier League, they pretty much know that this <laughs> this ownership now wants to basically upgrade on virtually every player in the squad. In fact, if you think of, if Newcastle had any designs and being kind of because I suppose this is going to be a step by step process. So say say hypothetically they don't even get relegated this season and they want to be kind of you know, I suppose in a lesser city position, who would you actually keep from this squad? Uh, Sam Maximum is he possibly the only one? Um, Wilson, perhaps. Yeah, but, but yeah, Will, Wilson, maybe, maybe one or two others. But I mean, I think it's a squad. I mean, obviously, no player is going to go out and not try. But it is a sort of thing that can have, that can create almost that. Even if it's on a subconscious level, it just creates. It, it means there isn't that full-blooded commitment that you would see from possibly other teams facing such a challenge. And then, yeah, of course, you get to January. And then it's about what type of players they do buy, especially because they're going to have to really throw money around to upgrade. I know there has been a, 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 this mood in the Premier League where none of the other clubs want to help Newcastle, which is, again, just another layer of complication. But at the same time, some clubs will be looking at them and say, right, well, here's some here's some money to come in to help ease some of the situations. But that's also po- possibly particularly true of some foreign clubs, especially those, because this has become a bit of a kind of a, a recurring issue or, a, or a, a prominent issue in the transfer market since the start of the COVID crisis, where suddenly a lot of European clubs, actually particularly some of the bigger European clubs, have these bloated squads on pre-COVID contracts. They just haven't been able to shift. And suddenly here's a club coming in into the market with a lot of disposable income. That's where there could be movements but whether that will necessarily bring in the right sort of team to stay up is, again, just another one of many, many questions in this situation. Yeah, well, we'll get another indication on Sunday, I suppose, won't we, Glenn, in terms of, you know, we mentioned Burnley. They know the territory. To be honest, I don't think many people expect them to remain in the relegation zone for much longer. You know, you looked at that goalless draw at Wolves on Wednesday night and that showed you what Burnley are all about, didn't it? Yes, and I mean, Mix makes a good point about you know players playing for someone else's future or their own future. I mean, the Burnley players are playing for their futures, and that 
you know, Dyche doesn't make that many changes from season to season. You know, if you're playing that Burnley team now, you keep the team up, you can be reasonably confident you've got a fair chance of starting the following season at the club and, and so on. I mean, he, the team evolves in terms of personnel rather than complete, you know, 18, 8 out every year. Uh, so you would say that. I mean, you know, there was a slight feeling that, you know, if you, the team is knocking around towards the bottom, eventually they go down. Gravity takes over. You can see that might happen at some point. But, I mean, they've not lost in five. I know they've only won one, but they're looking hard to beat. That they certainly be going. Last night was a good example. I imagine they play the same way at Newcastle at the weekend. And uh, you could certainly see them maybe pick up a goal from a set piece uh, um, and then hanging on to it. Mm-hmm. What about Leeds, Migs? You know, they've got some breathing space after that pretty fortunate win over Palace on Tuesday. You know, watching some of that game, you know, you, you think to yourself, where on earth would they be without Calvin Phillips and Rafinha? Yeah, they do usually elevate the quality of the squad, I mean, especially we're, 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 we're talking about, I suppose, as in relation to Newcastle, the profile of squads that get you into mid-table like that. And I, I, to be honest, it's actually one reason why I was too concerned for Leeds, because I think it, you can't get away from the reality that one of Bielsa's great successes in this role has been causing everyone to, to I think, so greatly overachieve. I mean, when he took over, what was it? It was a squad in 13th in the championship. It could be argued that most of the squad, particularly given how loyal Bielsa is to, to, to figures he feels have bought into his way or, or, or done the work for him, it could be argued it's still close to a championship squad in itself. And I think there was drastic overachievement last season. So I think the first few months of this season, combined with injuries, of course, were, were maybe a natural drop-off, but not necessarily sufficient to take them down because ultimately they were affected by injury as well. I, yeah, I, I, as we see with Phillips coming back in, because ultimately, yeah, you're, I think you're right. There are two players that just stand out so much because they feel like that real Premier League quality in a, in a squad that if it wasn't for this manager and it wasn't for the the approach they play would be uh, a lot f- further down the table, maybe a lot further down the English ladder. Doesn't it apply to a lot of teams in the bottom half, though? You take out the two key players and suddenly they're a weak team. I mean, Everton are obviously a classic example at the moment. You take out players like Ward Prowse out of Southampton or yeah, Isar out of Watford. I mean, suddenly they're much weaker sides. Those clubs haven't got the depth for the clubs at the top have got. I, I, yeah, I, I, I'd agree. But I think, I think it's more so in this case, it's also the maybe the leap in quality between these two players and without, without disrespecting their teammates. But yeah, I think that is the case. Yeah. After Sunday's home game against Brentford, Leeds have got Chelsea, City, Arsenal and Liverpool in quick succession. That Palace game on Tuesday, Glenn, started a sequence of seven games in 29 days. It was interesting to to see Bielsa saying he has doubts about the game's future. You know, he's complaining it's constantly commercialised in in, uh, quotes and and suggesting that the crowded calendar is making everything worse. Do you agree with him? Absolutely. And I mean, one thing we do know about Bielsa, he's not, um, yeah, I mean, well, he still lives about a shop, doesn't he, down the road? I mean, he's not someone who's fussed about the commercial, being commercialised himself as, a, as an individual. He's more a purist about playing the game. He, he's absolutely right. I mean, I think we've covered this territory a bit before. There are far too many games. Everybody wants a piece of pie. Everyone's in the trough. However, the problem is who's going to say no? The 
I don't hear the players saying we want to, we'll take a pay cut and play less games or their agents saying that. Yeah, managers with big squads instead of rotating their squads, moan about their players being you know, running out of, you know, not being fit enough. I mean, some of those top two or three teams could basically put the reserve team out several weeks and still be still be competitive in the, in the division and give their best players a rest. There are far too many games. Everybody wants more games. FIFA wants more games. UEFA want more games. Or the owners want more games, partly to pay for the obviously the wages. And the clubs are always looking for some new way of making money. I mean, the various crypto stuff and then non-fungible to- tokens tricks and so on. They're all everyone's always looking for a way of making more money at the game. And that basically comes down to playing the same players over and over and over again. He's completely right, but I can't see it changing. Well, while we're on the subject of money, Migs, this wider issue, are the the apologists for the Premier League who haven't wasted any time in trying to fight independent regulation with um, varying degrees of subtlety, is their desperation actually quite revealing? I I, I thought the, the comments of the Leeds Chief Executive, Angus Kinnear, where he was liking it to Maoism and the Great Leap Forward and the China, Great Chinese Famine, the greatest in history, you know, they were grotesque. Yeah, and and, it's, and they're, they're all the worse when you actually set alongside a simple graph of Leeds revenue over the past decade or so, where suddenly there's this huge leap year on year in the last two seasons, and, and we, which again speaks to precisely the power that has become such a problem and such a distorting effect on the game. And I, and it, I suppose it is actually all the more lamentable when Leeds, exactly because exactly that proves, were a championship club a mere two years ago. And because of the competitiveness of the Premier League, could very easily be a championship club again. I mean, it's, again, it's not, you know, it's, it's not exactly outlandish to think Leeds could cut down this year. And what, what, what would happen then? Can they change his view? So, I mean, that alone speaks to the short-sightedness or and, and self-interest in a lot of this. But because of that, it does basically... I mean, I'm just talking to a few people who've been involved in the issue, and there has been a feeling over the last while that basically, you know, especially with, with, with Perslow and Kinnear's comments, which again raises questions about the, uh, the Premier League communication strategy in this regard and why these are the two figures kind of speaking out on this. But even if you were on the fence about... An independent regulator. The, the the view from those who are who want it is they basically done their job for them. They don't they, they don't need the same public relations push because there's been such a pushback to to yeah to to, to such comments. Leeds have made a profit in twenty. I mean, obviously, last year's figures when the Premier League aren't out yet. But prior to that, Leeds have made a profit in twenty years. Uh, so much for such a well-run organisation. Uh, Villa hadn't made a profit in seven or eight years and then they only made a million quid. But it's, it's entirely self-interest. I can remember years and years ago doing a piece about the, the idea of expanding up and down from um, the fourth tier, so League Two now, and the uh, what was then the conference and now the National League. And the Kidderminster have been pushing for two up, two down, I think it was at the time. Anyway, then speaking to the Kidderminster just got into the league. I remember speaking to the Kidderminster chairman at the time. And he was like, no, no, yeah, we don't want to expand it. And I'm like, well, but last year you did. He said, yeah, but we're up now. Yeah, so. <laughs> and he was, he was he quite freely admitted. He, he completely changed it. His, his, vote, his view was completely different because they were now in. And if they got relegated, obviously his view would change. And yeah, it's entirely about self-interest. You can sort of understand it because that's the way the game is. But it, those people, you know, the Villa and Leeds, it's, it's quite recent they were in the championship. 
Well, we have got an, an, an inequitable Premier League in many ways. Mick, do you think that City's comfortable win over West Ham last weekend, what did that say about the distance between the top three and the rest? I mean, I suppose, first of all, I think we could well have our first, I mean, I suppose this is open to debate, a proper three-way title race. Maybe the first one in Premier League history with some some potential exceptions, the last one being 2014. A lot of it is to do with basically the wealth of these clubs, although, of course, Manchester United should be closer. But then that, that, that's, that speaks to one reason they're so far ahead, where basically the, the wealth of the Premier League and the attractiveness has brought in possibly the three best coaches in football right now, Guardiola, Tuchel and, and Klopp. So while it's a feat of management, those managers are there because of the wealth of the Premier League as well. And it has created this disparity I mean, it, it does feel it's, it, well, we're 13, 14 games in now, and it does feel quite soon for such a potential gap to open up. If Arsenal to lose at Manchester United tonight, although there's no guarantees of that right now, it will be a seven-point gap between third and and fourth, and with just two points separating the top, the top three. So they do look ahead, but then they don't look, just look ahead of the Premier League right now. They look basically, they're probably the three best teams in Europe as well to go with having the three best managers. Sorry, it really is a consequence of that. And maybe, maybe along with Bayern Munich as well. And while it is obviously exhilarating on one level, it, 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 should, it should be like when Liverpool went in that run two years ago, like when Manchester City won the treble. The excitement at what is happening in the football should also bring some more searching questions about why this is happening and whether it is a concern for the game. I mean, even that, even in that issue of the Premier League attracting so many coaches, which is genuinely unprecedented in football, it didn't even happen in Italy in the 90s, although that was partly down to the fact that Italy had such a, a pronounced coaching culture of its own. But it's it's not healthy for football, for, for one league or a certain amount of clubs or whatever to have any sort of concentration of power. You know, that, that, that erosion of competitive balance isn't a good thing for the game. And we are getting into a situation now where... You know, and we we discussed it on the show before, but even the, the the last international broadcasting rights deal felt just another juncture moment that kind of has set has made the Premier League almost uncatchable, and it is almost its own Super League now because it can just it just has a financial power beyond everyone else, and then within that, of course, there's a few clubs that have a financial power beyond anyone else. I think I think the Premier League ambition would be to be the NBA or the IPL of football. Yeah, the one league that attracts all the talent and becomes like superior to all the other leagues. I mean, it's like obviously different thing here. We do have European competition, other leagues, so they do then play the other teams, whereas the IPL and the um, and the NBA are, are closed competitions to an extent without that external stuff. But uh, I think that'd be the ambitions. But one thing, Migs, in your discussions, one thing that struck me quite interesting about the, the resistance to the fan-led review, it does appear to be driven by those middle-sized clubs, you know, Palace, Villa, Leeds, and I get the the I get hearing that very the big clubs don't seem to be quite so bothered about it. Well, why would that be? Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting one. I I, I suppose given that, that I mean the, ultimately the big clubs are almost entities unto themselves now, aren't they? I mean there is the issue as well, of course, in that so few of their prominent figures will, will speak out on these issues, where it's always left to this Premier League's middle tier. But I mean, I suppose the big clubs are of such a size now that it almost feels like they're insulated from a lot of the wider issues of the game. But and also, 
also, isn't isn't the you know well let's call it the Kidderminster principle applying here, but they want to protect what they what they what they have at the moment as well, and the the very fact that people are talking about scrapping parachute payments will will have a you know a detrimental effect to them if they go down. Yes, I mean obviously it will do. I mean because I guess they always assume they come straight back up because the scrap of the parachute payments if they go down and and don't come up in the next two to three years, then it would obviously help them because it'd be a much more even platform to try and come back up. But everyone always, it's short-termism, which is one of the, one of the blights of the game. Mm. One of the, I mean, we've talked about money. Let's perhaps just talk a little bit about probably what got us into the game in the first place, which is actually the sheer, the wow factor of football played at its best. I'm referring here, Migs, to the Bernardo Silva goal. You know the 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 pace, the movement, the slickness of the passing, and the finish. You know that's that makes kids of it of us all, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. I mean, I I'd heard about the about the goal before I saw it late last night after the Merseyside derby, and uh, you know it was one of those where you knew it was coming. I, I and I was wondering after the well, how's he going to finish it? Gonna, that's going to make it such a great goal. And he, on one level, I was always almost thinking like. That is that is quite wasteful to be volleying it from there, but of course he just spoke to the incredible technique because you know he he had enough space around him to take a touch, take it on, and 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 just slip it in. But no, he he went for an astounding volley. It, it was it was almost a kind of a a higher quality version, as we said, of, of Pookie's the night before, which also had that lovely guided ball across. But yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, and it's. It's the it's the double side of this as well. On the one like on the one hand, there's all the question of the wider structures of the game. On the other hand, and what is so seductive about it, and basically why it, it is so commercially powerful, is because ultimately it's so good to look at, and especially when England has avoided the problems of other of other leagues where it has, well, right now, three clubs playing this playing such wonderful football. I mean. It it does feel like Liverpool and City maybe right now have a higher ceiling in terms of their attacking potential than Chelsea. Although Chelsea have they've started to develop performances a little bit over the past while, and you do sense there's much more to come once it clicks an attack for Tuchel's team. But I mean, with City and Liverpool at the moment, it, it's it, it's almost kind of the pieces of art in every game. I had I hadn't heard about the goal, so I'm wondering what they're doing in the back. You know, playing these ever more intricate sort of heading routines, um, trying to get the ball out, and then the, the finish. Yeah, you know, as you say, it, real wow factor. And P- Pookie's volley was a great volley, but he, he volleyed it the way most people do, would do. You know, with the laces. Yeah. Bernardo Silva's is side footed that volleying from twenty yards, first time from across. I mean, incredible level of the technical ability. And you know, we, we talked about we touched on Liverpool at the moment. The way Liverpool are playing is is inspiring the kid in me as well. Reflections on that Merseyside derby from their point of view, Glenn, they're looking irresistible, aren't they? They are looking very good, aren't they? Um, I think it came up on the match of that last night, wasn't it? You know what Salah's going to do, but stopping them is another matter entirely. They're looking tremendous. They've, they've got a bit more depth, it looks like, in midfield. They've got a bit more competition for places, which has always been one of the issues, a bit more creativity coming through there. The, the, the full line, obviously, Jota's been a big plus in terms of just giving a little bit of an extra dimension and, you know, and settling very quickly with you know, contributing goals. So it, it means they're slightly less dependent. You know, when when uh, Firmino's out, they've got an extra player in and so on. 
I mean, coming up, obviously, there is this African Nations, African Cup of Nations, which will affect them and Arsenal more than probably anybody else. And they'll be losing two key forwards in particular. Uh, of course, it depends on you know, how, how long will they be out, perhaps. But that's obviously coming up. It depends on how long they're out. Obviously, depends how far their teams go in the competition. But uh, that that will be affect, that might affect them at a time when there's going to be quite a few games missed then. Yeah, what struck me about that that win was that you know Liverpool used emotion in that game and they weren't controlled by it against Everton. Mm. Mix one of the players. Okay, we can talk about Salah. You know, rightly, nineteen in nineteen is it makes the Ballon d'Or voting seem a bit of a even greater farce. Jordan Henderson, he's really flourishing at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, and I think a proper sum of it comes as well from the fact that he has had such a broken year. So now he's actually in in in, in terms of injuries and even going into the European Championships, and now we're seeing a player who is fresh and also not just fresh. But uh, you know he's physically in good condition in the short term, but also in a kind of a, a physical prime given his age profile, and we're seeing he's in that kind of sweet spot you see in career sometimes where suddenly experience, mentality, and physique comes together to allow a player to go on to a higher level and maybe touch the kind of or push the limits of what they're possible because I mean even even in his best years for Liverpool so far I suppose there has been an occasionally uncharitable interpretation but not, not a completely unfair one that he was his true value to a club team was in the standard he set and those kind of leadership abilities and also that willingness to press and to run and how how good he was in that in those kind of two number eight positions that are so central to how Klopp plays and how, how, how willing he is to press for him but but ultimately, I suppose that that's down that's down to just pure industry and pure. I suppose they've got almost kind of more basic football qualities. Well, what we're really seeing now is so, and, and there there have been there, there have been moments throughout all that time. Like I'm thinking of some of the some of the assists for Salah. I think it was against Spurs one chip across the goal. Henderson's always had that capacity of a bit more in him, and we're we're now we're just seeing a player on that kind of plane where kind of execution and ambition is kind of taking him on. And hence, goals like that against Everton and just his, his general all-out performance. And to Liverpool as well in that game, there was almost kind of um, a neat symmetry to it because it was it was Henderson's disallowed goal in the match last season at Goodison Park that also saw Van Dijk injured. That almost it just set a tone for their season. And I, I know I know they picked up a little bit after that and went on to beat Palace seven nil. But it's it's it still just indicated this is going to be a difficult campaign for them. And right now we saw the opposite. Right at the end of the game, as at the start of the game, Henderson scores a superb goal to set the tone for the performance. And he just has that feel of for Liverpool right now, absolutely everything going right. They're on a plane themselves with with that kind of set by their captain. Mm. Lest we forget, Chelsea is still top. They're at West Ham in Saturday's lunchtime BT Sport game. What about their, their wastefulness up front? Is it just a, a case of uh, waiting for Lukaku? It looks like at the moment, doesn't it? I mean, they're, oh, you could say they're, they're lucky that everyone else is chipping in, but obviously it's not luck. It's partly the way they design, the way they play. They're, their full-backs do push very high and, and are good finishers, good at set pieces. You know, so, you've got, um, so so the goals are coming. And obviously, you've got guys like Mason Mount, who's a good, a good goal scorer. Georgina's generally pretty good on penalties. So you, the goals are coming throughout the team, and that's, that is partly by design. 
it's, it's not just they've got lucky that the defenders are scoring lots of goals and the midfielders scoring lots of goals. So, uh, and you, you could argue that's partly by designing the way they play up front. So, I mean, Werner, Werner's misses have been very well documented the last year and a half, but because his movement is so good, he does create a lot of space. He does create a lot of opportunities with other, other players. That, that's the sort of movement that doesn't get picked up even in assist statistics because you only get an assist if you've actually touched the ball. You know, space creation, you can only see it if you're actually at the game and obviously his manager would appreciate that in a way that the, the numbers won't. So that's all. But then again, obviously, you would like your, you know, your was it 70 million, whether it was 50 million, you would like your very expensive centre-forward to, to score more goals when he does get into a goal-scoring opportunity. And we have felt, I think we you know, discussed last year, that it would happen and it hasn't really happened yet. So I guess in that respect, now waiting for Lukaku, who started the season in tremendous form and looked very good. But as it happens, they don't concede many goals. So you don't have to you know, score three or four goals every game if you're not conceding very many goals. I think they've conceded six this season. So if one's enough most weeks, you don't need someone banging in 30 goals a year. Mm. Yeah, while we're on the subject of Timo Werner, Migs, do you give any credence to speculation that Ralph Ranyuk will try and take Werner off Chelsea's hands and take him to United. You know, it's a pretty obvious story to write. Is it one of those two plus two equals five stories? I think it is easy to write, but I do think there's actually some substance behind it just because of the existing relationship between the two, but also the fact that it hasn't, I mean, certainly in terms of goal scored, it hasn't worked out for Werner at Chelsea. Now, I think it's it's well known that Tuchel does value his running and the kind of you know the the way he sets a tempo for the pressing, but at the same time there is realization and a, and a maybe a certain frustration that he just hasn't kicked on in that way. And I don't think Chelsea would be completely against the idea of moving him on or changing round river. But actually, the biggest doubt for this story is that would they be willing to sell to a direct rival? Okay, Manchester United aren't close to them in the table right now. But given the potential wrangling effect, effect and and the reality that they will have a new manager next season, it wouldn't take too much for United to get back up there, especially given how much they spend. But I, I think Chelsea would be conscious of the idea of United potentially spending some of that money on Werner and then what it would look like if he had such a turnaround there. But that's not really United's problem, is it? The, the forward line. The problem's in the central midfield and at the back. I mean, if you're going to start spending money, surely you, you, your first... Job is to fix the things that are broken before you start bringing a player. And let's be honest, he's ranked it's only there at the end of the season. Are the hierarchy really going to sanction him spending a lot of money on a striker and giving the money to Chelsea for a player who the next manager might not actually fancy that much? I know he's oh, yeah, consultant, uh, well, but he won't be picking a team. I suppose there's two different things there. I mean, I would give credence to the idea that Rangnick wants Werner. Whether Manchester United are actually willing to spend Werner is, a, you're right, is, an, is, a, is a different issue. And I know, like, ultimately, I can't really see the deal being done for those two reasons. I don't think Chelsea would sell to United and United have other priorities. Mm. What about West Ham, Glenn? Frustrating draw with Brighton. Yet another VAR piece of nonsense, which probably stopped them going 2-0 up. We know what we're getting, the set-piece excellence, the Moyes organisation. Will they be able to sustain the impact that they've made? You say probably not for the reasons that it's affected the other clubs like you know Leicester in recent years and so on. It's it's, it's a depth. I mean, Ogbonna's obviously a loss at the back. Cresswell was injured at the week um, last night. 
yeah, those clubs haven't got quite the depth. So if you miss key players, I mean, Antonio's been in and out a little bit with fitness earlier early on in the season. So you, you can't really afford to replace those players for those clubs sort of in the, the middle tier because you've only got so many great players. You, you can't, you know, you, you, you look at who City can bring in when they've got someone injured and then you look at who West Ham can bring in when they've got someone injured. So it is much harder for those clubs. So I would say... You need to keep those players fit, and obviously, you know, if you get a um, a sort of a physical impact injury, yeah, that's unavoidable. But you can see why clubs now more and more spending lots of money on on trying to get the very best physios, you know, the the best uh, preparation, um, sports science, and so on, because you know players are you know they're paying them a huge amount of money. When they're off the pitch, that's no use to anybody. And you need those particular key players. So that's become one of the big growth areas of the game, the behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, I know, interesting, Benita's made lots of changes to everything recently, hasn't he, in terms of fitness. Even in the women's game, Arsenal have had a big sort-out because they've had lots of injuries. So, you know, the investment is going in. You know, because if you, if, it doesn't matter how good your players are, if they're not on the pitch, they're no use to anybody. And clubs with thinner squads are more reliant on that than, than other clubs. So you say... Like a lot of these teams, if you have a good run where you can keep everybody fit, you've got a chance. As soon as you get two or three key injuries, then you're going to start slipping down the table. Mm. You know, mentioning you know the women's game, um, Migs, let's end on that if we could. You know, we've seen England winning 20 nil this week. Surely the women's game needs to find some sort of solution to those sort of mismatches. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, no football match, no serious elite professional football match should be ending 20 nil. It's not good for anyone. It's not It's not just a problem restricted to the women's game, of course. It was, I mean, there were similar conversations had last month when England beat San Marino 10 nil. But, I mean, the very fact it's a direct double of that scoreline indicates it's almost... It is a problem on a bigger scale in the, in the women's game just because it is still ultimately a developing game. And there's going to be so many more countries at completely different stages. Although there were a few concerning scores right across Europe, including Ireland's own 10-0 win over Georgia. And yeah, I mean, it, it is one of those situations. As much to protect the development of teams where you do actually need tiered qualification structures, I think, just to, fun- just to funnel things so that ultimately teams are playing close, opposition closer to their level. I, I, do, I do think it will come in. The UEFA have said that, that they are looking again at what happened. I think they used to filter out in the last World Cup qualifying, the lowest 16 nations went into pre-qualifying uh, and then they, they ate the, the men's system in UEFA this time. But in most confederations, there is some kind of pre-qualifying. And I think they've realised it's been a mistake. I mean, one of the reasons that they're so poor, a lot of their players couldn't, a lot of their best players were working and couldn't get time off to come to England to play a football match. So they've got no chance, really, in those circumstances. Mm. I suppose on the other, uh, the other side of things, Glenn, and you know, you know, you're a close observer of the women's game. Sunday's FA Cup final at Wembley, big crowd, Another potential um, milestone occasion, do you think? Yes, I think they've sold 40,000 plus tickets. I mean, very, it's helpful that uh, obviously two London teams, neither of whom are playing on Sunday. So that, that clearly will help the crowd. I hope the weather's good. One issue that has been the women's game is people, because tickets are relatively cheap on a bad day, you know, not coming along. But uh, they have all, you know, there's no longer free tickets. I mean, people pay for their tickets and 
It looks a tempting game. It could well be another, you know, you're looking at 40,000 plus and it should be an excellent game. They are the two best teams around at the moment. I mean, City have had a, a poor season by their standards, partly due to an incredible run of injuries, especially in defence. It should be an excellent game between two good attacking sides. Mm. Arsenal, as you say, and, and Chelsea, they're, they're the best teams in the game. Arsenal beat Chelsea early on in the season. Do you read anything into that? And who who needs to dominate to be the decisive factor in this game? I don't read a lot into that. It's a psycholo- in terms of the game itself, Chelsea had deliberately rested players coming off the Olympics. Emma Hayes is a big fan of periodisation and looking after players and you know, peaking them towards the end of the season and felt that the players needed a break after the Olympics because a lot of them played quite late on. So Chelsea did put out a relatively weak side you know, by their standards on the day, whereas Arsenal didn't. Arsenal decided to give players a rest a bit later in the season. I mean, Miedem is just a little a little break. And that was one of the factors behind the victory. What was important about the victory, though, it broke a bit of a psychological stranglehold that Chelsea had been quite successful against Arsenal in recent years, um, you know, winning quite heavily sometimes. And I think so that was a bit of a factor so in, which will play into, possibly play into this weekend. In terms of the match itself, Miedem obviously is the one you look at Arsenal in terms of goals, but Kim Liss was, uh, you know, a brilliant pull of the strings in midfield. They're very good on the left-hand side. McCabe's had an excellent season. Mead's having a very good season as well, producing goals and assists. And she was very important in the game at the Emirates early in the season. They will miss Lau Williamson, who's out at the back, and is a you know, calming influence beyond her years. So they will miss that. Whereas on the other side, obviously Chelsea, you look at Kerr's finishing... Uh, She's just off the plane from Australia, which won't help, as indeed a couple of the Arsenal players, because you know, it's been an international break in the women's in the women's game, and they've been playing two games against the US in, in Australia. Uh, I assume they've managed to get through the COVID complications in terms of getting the tests done and stuff like that. Helps, I suppose, if you've got a resource of Chelsea behind you. Kurt, Frank Kirby's in great form, really good form, providing chances and, and finishing chances. Uh, so it should be an excellent game. I mean, Penel Hard has been out, but Jesse Fleming uh, sees the opportunity to play in her absence. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a real toss up in terms of who's winning. You, you say marginally Arsenal might be slight favourites, but Chelsea have a lot of experience in these competitions and um, excellent manager. So yeah, a real toss up. Yeah, well, lest we forget, this FA Cup final marks the 100th anniversary of the FA banning women's football. Uh, that's a centenary of which to be ashamed. The women's game is thriving, though as we've seen at international level, and as Mig spoke there, it is really imperfect at the moment. Sunday's final has the makings of a classic, two highly technical, deeply talented teams with two intriguing coaches. Do yourself a favour and watch it. I reckon you'll be pleasantly surprised. Will it win converts? I hope so. In the meantime, thanks to Miguel and Glenn for their insight, and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.